another episode of Too Legit. Once again, it's your girl, Anna, a.k.a. Anna Mission. And I'm Kelsey Jandok. I go by KJ, a.k.a. Cage the Doer. Yes, this is a podcast for non-traditional law students with non-traditional backgrounds. Our goal of this platform is to give those who are thinking about law school or who are already in law school some tips and tricks on how to navigate the legal profession, but in a strategic way. If you've listened to our podcast in the past, you know that yours truly was a former registered nurse. And I'm a former flight attendant and still currently a serial entrepreneur. Yes, KJ, I'm so excited to have this particular guest today. I know you, you know, are. I, I, <laughs> I always say that I'm a former registered nurse and everyone looks at me crazy, but now we got another former registered nurse on the pod. Yeah. Um, she <laughs> is yes. killing it right now. She is on social media as your nurse lawyer. She has her own solo practice firm. I've been following her since the day I started law school. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. just... Really? Yes, yeah, I've been, I've been hearing about you for years. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Please help me welcome, without further ado, attorney Ernice Williams, RNJD. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh my God, that makes me feel so good. I always feel like People are just like, oh, I'm just following. I just started following, and I'm just like, I've been around for a while. I was telling KJ, like, when we first started this podcast, there was, like, a list. She was like, okay, put out a list of top five people that you want to have on your podcast. Mm-hmm. And your name was at the top. I was like, no, we have to have oh, on. Yeah. We have to show people that it's possible. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm just so glad that this is our final semester, law school, final stretch, and mm-hmm. that you're on the podcast to mm-hmm. kind of show people you know, exactly how it's done and how to like continue to follow your dreams and just, you know, Mm -hmm. thank you for the blueprint and every step that you're doing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man, that makes me feel so good because I definitely didn't have a blueprint and it's been very hard to figure it out in Mm -hmm. a very different way. So you saying that makes me feel so good because I wish I had someone like me who was just doing it differently. Mm -hmm. All the people who are ahead of me or just mm-hmm. out of touch with social and it mm-hmm. wasn't really their thing. And they had all mm-hmm. these connections and I'm like, well, how do you get clients? And mm-hmm. they're like, I don't know. I just, they mm-hmm. just come and I'm like, okay. So yeah, that's awesome. That's why we're so lucky to have you guide yeah. us. So as, as hard as it was for you, we appreciate the struggle that you mm-hmm. went through to be able to be so humble, to give back to us who look up to you. Thank you know, you. so thank you so much. Making that, yeah, making that road just a little bit smoother. It's still rough, but just a little bit smoother. Yeah, still rough. <laughs> um, but for those who haven't been stalking you since one L year, like myself, um, <laughs> can you tell people like who you are and where you're from originally and what you did before law school? Yeah, so originally I'm from Connecticut, surprisingly. Um, and people are like, Black people in Connecticut? Yeah, lots of us. Um, and so I went, you know, to, to Howard for undergrad and for nursing school. Oh, my goodness. In 2003, I've been, oh, my God, I'm so old. Um, and so, yeah, in 2003, I went off to college and I knew I wanted to be a nurse. I thought I wanted to be a doctor and got into nursing and really loved it. And so I graduated. It took me a little while. I graduated in 2008, landed my dream job at Hopkins and started in the OR. So I've been a nurse for 14 years. I've worked in so many different areas, pre-op, PACU, hospice. Um, I worked at a federally qualified healthcare center. Um, I did travel nursing during the pandemic. So I've done it all. 
And um, I went to law school three years into my career because <clears throat> I knew I wanted to do something different. Um, I knew that being a nurse was a band-aid to a bigger problem and policy was actually going to be necessary for things to change, but I didn't want to get a policy degree. So I decided to go to law school, which was unheard of. Nobody I knew who was a nurse had gone to law school and the few people who I could find were all working essentially as um, in malpractice or some worked in hospitals, but they weren't very diverse in their experience. Like they got that job and stayed there. So they didn't really have a lot of guidance on like, how do you navigate like now where we are, you know, especially after the economic downturn in 2008 and all of those things. And so I went to law school thinking, you know, I'm going to get another degree. I'm going to really save the world. Like I thought nursing was going to let me save the world. And I am just helping people stay stable enough to not come back to the hospital. And I really want to do something bigger and greater. And so that's why I went to law school. So I've been a lawyer for almost eight years and it's just been a journey. (laughs) That is so amazing. You framed that so well, because I think a lot of people don't know what the purpose would be for you to go from one to the other. Mm -hmm. So to highlight the difference, what you said about the Band-Aid for a bigger problem, that's so perfect. Mm -hmm. And you said that, you know, when you started, there wasn't a lot of RNJDs out there. So, but were there any other influences outside of just wanting to uh, affect a policy that made you want to pursue a degree in law? Yeah. So the Affordable Care Act was coming out. I lived in DC. Um, You know, if you're not in politics, it's like, what are you doing? So even if you're not political, the conversations are very political because everybody works on the Hill or knows somebody who works on the Hill and our lives revolved around whatever was happening in Washington. So if something crazy was happening, there were protests. If, you know, people were, you know, trying to fight a bill, there were rallies or there were, you know, people calling in or the news cycle was very political. So you kind of lived in it versus I think people in other cities, you go home and if you are from Houston, you may be really heavy in the oil industry. Um, You know, if you lived in New York, you may be really big with labor movement. Like, I think it's very industry specific, depending on where you lived. And so being in D.C. just made me very political in a way that I think I wouldn't have been if I went to school anywhere else. And it made me see things from a broader lens. Like, it's very easy to say, oh, everyone's against us and everything's all bad. But you saw how much money moved through this country and you see how much is happening for certain groups of people. And it's just like, how come it never trickles down Trickle to the people down. Mm-hmm. that you're trying to help? <laughs> and so, you know, when you start to ask those difficult questions, you either find the answer or you become the answer. And, you know, for mm-hmm. me, I think I had to sit down and say, I don't, I don't see the answers to my questions. So I have to figure out how I can become the answer and help the people in a way that I think is most beneficial. For wow. Them. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, I understand, you know, coming from, you know, my background, why you would want to go to law school. But, you know, part of the reason why KJ and I started this podcast is because a lot of people didn't really quite see our vision um, for, you know, our back, our background and why we're pursuing a degree Why we have purpose. And that's the thing is that this is a very purposeful decision that we made to choose to sacrifice Mm -hmm. a lot of our life and our careers to come back to do actually something with it. So it's nice to hear mm-hmm. your story mm-hmm. too, because then that shows us, okay, we're yeah. on the right path. <laughs> yeah, it's layers to us. I think even bigger, I understood that people don't respect nurses. People don't respect 
the working class. But people respect doctors and lawyers and dentists and people of a certain stature, regardless of how you got there. Regardless if you got a law degree from a small school or big school, you say you're a lawyer, it, mm-hmm. it says something, it does something, it moves people. And so for me, I, I said to myself, what I'm black, I'm a woman, I don't come from wealth. I don't come from a lot of money. I don't have legacy. I went to Howard. A lot of people have come from legacy. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that. So I needed something that was going to put mm-hmm. me in the room and get me an opportunity to speak at a level that I wouldn't have mm. if I didn't have that degree. And I knew I didn't necessarily want to get a doctorate. Um, and so I said, okay, if I say I'm a lawyer, people are going to look at me differently. People are going to talk to me differently, but people also understand that I see them differently because I understand the law Absolutely. in a different way. And that's a good segue into our topic today, which, you know, you said, regardless of whether you go to a big school or a small school, you're a lawyer, everyone looks at you differently. And so before we get started, want to get some vocab down for those who may not know, HBCU stands for Historically Black College and or University, and PWI stands for Predominantly White Institutions. I wanted to highlight, um, you know, your your unique experience because you went to HBCU, doubled up, you went for undergrad and for law school. And like I said, KJ and I, we both went to big private, not private, Mm -hmm. big public schools, UT and UCLA. And our law school right now is also traditionally a PWI. And so um, we wanted to highlight HBCUs because, you know, in going about uh, talking about Washington and politics, a lot of, um, prominent figures now, including the Supreme Court Justice nomination or nominee, um, has roots and ties to HBCUs, including our vice president. And so just wanted to highlight um, the HBCU experience because we're definitely not going back to law school school after this. <laughs> so we want people to know, you know, who are still thinking about going to law school uh, about the benefits of going to HBCU. Yeah. So for me going to, I, I grew up in a, in, in white areas pretty much, even though um, you know, Connecticut has a small black population in some cities, but um, pretty much I was always like the only black girl in a lot of classes or one of a few, um, especially when I started to take more advanced classes or honors classes and stuff like that. And that to me wasn't fun. I don't like necessarily being other. And I said that when I went to college, I wanted an experience where I didn't have to think about my race, that I could just enjoy myself and have fun. And HBCUs were that. My cousin went to Tuskegee for a little while and he liked it. It just was a little bit too far from home. It was in the country. He wasn't really feeling that aspect of it, but it was an experience that I know that he was like, man, it's just like nothing but black people, like a sea of black people. Like it's just very different. Um, I grew up a little, a little bit in Houston as well. And Prairie View. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew that's yes. another reason why I liked you. I Sorry. It. Um, <laughs> and so a lot of people graduated from Prairie View. And so Prairie when View. they talk about their experience, you're like, oh my God, that looks amazing. You see their pictures, you see the dancers. It's like, oh, this is amazing. And so I was like, well, if I go to college, I'm going to go to the number one HBCU and I'll see if I get in. I didn't think I was going to get in because my grades were okay. I didn't really study for the SATs or the ACTs. I just went and took them the morning of just, I was just crazy. I don't know. I was going through a lot growing up. And so I was just like, I'm going to take mine. I was like, you want to take a class? I'm like, no, I'll just see what happens. Um, but when I applied, I shared my story and I don't really share my story much, but a little bit of my story is pretty much, I grew up, um, with, with, in a very unstable home. Um, my mom wasn't really around and I just had a lot going on, you know, growing up. And so I just told them my story. I'm like, you know, if you give me this chance, like I promise I'm going to make it work. Like 
I have no other choice. I have no other option. And I got in before my friends who got early accepted. They, they applied in like November. I applied the last day at the last hour and literally was running to the post office. And I got my acceptance before them. And so, yeah, like I just, it's crazy. And so when I stepped on Howard's campus, I knew immediately I had made the right decision because it felt like home. It felt like love. It felt like just Black power in a way that wasn't um, militant because there are militant aspects of it, but it just felt very like my grandmother's kitchen. Like it just felt good. It smelled good. Like it was just powerful. And I think it was when I went to visit, it was a Friday and Fridays are really big on HBC campuses. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful day and everybody was outside. And I was like, this is where I belong. Um, and so going to Howard, I had no money. I had no scholarships. I had no family. I had family, but like not my parents. I didn't have mm-hmm. their support. And so I struggled financially. It was really expensive. I had to take out a lot of student loans. Um, I had to navigate that process, which was intense for someone who didn't have family who went to college before. So I did all of that on my own and it forced me to advocate for myself. So I became a strong advocate by having to advocate for myself. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of things that are great at at PWIs is their systems are usually way more efficient, way more effective. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can kind of, they do a lot for you and help you with you, help you through things. But at HBCUs, you better stand up for yourself or you're going to get going. So those semesters when I didn't have enough money to pay, instead of me just accepting that I didn't have enough money, I called the president's office. My grandmother called and was like, hey, this is how much money we need. And then somehow the money showed up in my account. Wow. And so that's not everyone's HBCU experience. But for me, Howard's stance is if you're a good student, we're going to try to keep you here by any means. So we're not going to let you leave because of $3,000. We're not going to let you leave because of $800. Like, especially when you're getting good grades. If you're not getting good grades, you're on your own. Um, and, and so I grew a community, not just of my friends, but of the people who worked at that college. Right, right, they right. loved the students. Like mm-hmm. the janitorial services, the people who, you know, keep the grounds, the security officers, very much so. The people who live mm-hmm. in the community, they love like Howard is in a, a, a traditional black community. And there, of mm-hmm. course, were lots of crime and lots of issues. Mm-hmm. But the older generation who literally was there since Howard's been around, they grew up on Howard's campus. Mm-hmm. Their parents were professors there. They love us. And so to be mm-hmm. in a place of love for four for me for five years, you grow to love yourself differently. Like mm-hmm. I loved myself so much that when I found myself in toxic work situations, I was like, I don't have to live like this. I don't have to be like this. Like mm-hmm. this isn't normal. Like normal is Howard. Normal is home. Normal is yes, we struggle, but we 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 figure it out. And so, um, you know, the HBCU experience, I think is very varied depending on who you are. So you can get to Howard. And if you're really into like African studies, there's a whole African studies movement over here. There's a whole like multicultural movement over here. There's, it's just so many different pockets of people. Um, We definitely Mm -hmm. come in as an individual and we leave as one. Uh, Because the first weeks of school, you represent where you're from. Like, oh, I'm from Connecticut, Mm -hmm. I'm from New York, I'm from here. But by the end, it's like, oh, we all went to Howard. So you have that sense of unity. Uh, And and they tell you from day one, it's like a brainwashing. Like, you're here to serve a global community. You're a part of a global community. Your job is to take what you learn back to your community and do something better. That's what we're taught. I don't think 
people at PWIs are given that same charge. They, they're not given mm-hmm. that same calling to do more with your degree than just mm-hmm. show up. Like you, mm-hmm. it's not about getting a job. It's about creating impact. Um, and so when you hear that over and over for five years, you attend events with professors like Dr. Greg Carr, who just speaks life and makes you see the vision of America so differently, you come out a different person. And so although I struggled a lot through undergrad, when I decided to go back to law school, I applied to PWIs. I even had scholarships to them. And when I talked to students who had graduated from there, who also went to Howard, they told me don't go. Her experience from going from Howard, going to a school in Virginia was so bad. She was like, they treated her so bad. It made her so uncomfortable. She hated her experience. She almost resented going to law school. And I was like, oh, I can't afford, I can't afford that. I can't right. afford mentally and financially yeah, to be in that space. Um, and of course, for them, it's a diversity thing. They yeah. need you on mm-hmm. campus, right? So she became the face of their, all of their, you know, pamphlets you know, mm-hmm. on their website because she was a black and a woman. Yeah. And I said, I'm not going to do that. So I applied to Howard. I got in, still no scholarship. So I took out student loans. And once again, mm-hmm. it was the best decision wow. for me. I ended up having a baby my second year wow. law school. And would never suggest it. Don't worry. Zero stars. Like, yeah, <laughs> don't recommend it. Uh, don't do it. But I mean, other students, definitely not. Other students had had <laughs> babies, but I had a C-section. It was, I thought I was going to have them like on time or early. As a nurse, I know better. I was like, he's going to come early. It's my first baby. That baby was cooking. We had to, I had to eat crab to get that baby out. Like, it was so bad. Bad nurse. And so I had to return to school with a wow. newborn and no family oh support. So my aunt came down for a little while, but other than that, it was just me and my husband and my classmates watched my baby for those first few weeks. Then my professor, the, a few of them were like, well, just bring the baby to class. Like, you can't miss wow. class, just bring the baby to class. And until I kind of found my rhythm, my professors and everybody else made it work. When I didn't mm-hmm. have an internship and I was four, you know, four or five months pregnant, my professor was like, girl, hide that belly and go to this interview, get the job and then tell you're pregnant later. Right. And so all of those things, I think you don't get necessarily like necessarily from a PWI. I think there are aspects of that. If you have really good professors, but for the most part, it's such a family. Like these professors are my family. I love them as if they're my family. One of our professors got sick and we were sick. Like what's going to happen? Like, you know, it's just different than Mm -hmm. I think anywhere else. And for some black people, it's a place of healing um, because you don't necessarily get that out in the real world. And when you do get out in the real world, it's yeah. ugly. And I always know that no matter what, mm-hmm. when life gets bad, come Howard homecoming, I'm going home <laughs> um, because it's going to give me a sense mm-hmm. of pride, a sense of healing so that I can go back out and mm-hmm. serve in the world. Wow. That's that's interesting. You said mm-hmm. that, you know, you felt like you're at home at Howard. Um, you felt that way mm-hmm. both as an undergrad in law school and then on a grand bigger scale in terms of like imposter syndrome, did you feel that while attending uh, HB or not HBCU Howard at all? Or was it just when you got out into the work field? I mean, I don't think, I think that's the crazy thing. There's no such thing as imposter syndrome at HBCU. Either you got it or you don't because nobody's, you cannot bring into the classroom your class. You cannot bring like, Oh, I'm legacy. Those professors don't Hmm. care. They don't care who your mama they don't care about your daddy. They don't care if you're Greek. They don't care if you're a football player. What they care about is them mm-hmm. giving you the information you need to go and do what it is That's that you're good. supposed to be doing. 
So professors are super passionate about what they do. And their goal is to help you understand the information so that you can go and do more. Um, and so I never felt imposter syndrome wow. until I graduated. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Like either I had it or I don't. And I honestly, right. I almost failed out of school first semester because I couldn't pass algebra wow. one. Like I was struggling. And the professor said, said to me, was doing bad. And I was just like, okay, cool. I'm going home. Like, you know, it was just what I thought happened. And he's like, why, why would you fail? Like, there's no reason to fail. And it was a few of us struggling. He was like, come by my office before class or mm-hmm. after class. And he will hold wow. a session teaching the content, breaking it mm-hmm. down. And it was during Ramadan. So my man was weak teaching class and teaching us double. And with no, like, it, it was nothing, no expectation. His, he, he's like, you got to learn this. You got to pass wow. the class. Like there's no other wow. option for you. I, you know, and it, it was just powerful to see. And when he passed away, maybe like five or six mm-hmm. years ago, like we were so mm-hmm. distraught just, and everyone's story was the same. He cared so much that he took you, he saw you struggling. And instead of watching you struggle, he told you, okay, we like, I'm not just going to give it to you, but I'm just going to mm-hmm. essentially just let it go. Like I'm going to teach you so you don't have to just walk out of here. And, and I think that's the power of Howard in, in all of the senses. All of the professors, not all, mm-hmm. you know, you got good and bad professors. And there was a couple crazy <laughs> ones who do crazy things, like just don't be teaching you sign and sign and sheet. He was he, like, just weird <laughs> stuff, but most of us really care. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, that's what I don't see in the real world is when I walked out and I got my first job, it was a shell shock. Like, why are y'all treating me like this? Like, I'm smart. I went college I graduated I passed my NCLEX I did all of the things check 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 and it's just like oh you, you're just a tech or you can't be the nurse you you the yeah. nurse you have a four-year degree and I'm like oh, wow well, I went to Howard like it's a university I've never heard of it and I literally went to school 20 miles, <laughs> what you know 20 miles from my first job. people in Baltimore say oh I never heard of I never heard of it and I'm just like what's what's going on so I think imposter syndrome and I think somebody said this before, imposter syndrome isn't us and what we're thinking is really just racism. Mm, that's a nice, it's a PC way of saying so If there was no racism, <laughs> there would be no imposter. Yeah. Like, it's, it's truly systemic oppression and it's racism working because anytime, in any way they're getting into your head to keep you from being able to think that you're good enough keeps you from there doing you go. that. I kind of have a similar experience growing up in Hawaii mm-hmm. because, you know, everyone looks like me. I, I am the majority. So a lot of people mm-hmm. don't want to leave Hawaii because they don't want to experience that. Mm-hmm. They don't want to have to face mm-hmm. the real world things. So it's nice to hear, you know, how how so, you mm-hmm. turn those things mm-hmm. around and utilize your experiences. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then and then bring it back, like you said. You learn that's the, mm-hmm. how you said about mm-hmm. what Howard preaches is. You learn that, then you bring it back to your community. Yeah, right. yeah. Are there any um, falsehoods that some people have, you know, have been touting about HBCUs that you want to clear up here, or that you feel like not a lot of people know about HBCUs? I mean, I think that there are always going to be people who feel some type of way of why HB. Like, I think people have no longer understand why HBCUs were created. So people see HBCUs Mm. as like, oh, those are black schools, not understanding they're historical because they were created because black people couldn't get into other places. And they only still exist because 
we need places that are safe for black people to learn so that they can go out and be great in the world. So when you calculate how many PhDs, black PhDs graduate, the majority of them are graduating from HBCUs. If you look at the black doctors, the black lawyers, the black dentists, the majority of them are graduating from HBCUs. And it's because they wanna come somewhere safe to learn where they can be themselves and then take those skills back to their community. And so for me, I've never really listened to or cared about or desired to clear up because if it ain't for you, it ain't for you. If it, mm-hmm. Even if you're black, because there are yeah. black people in America who don't feel that HBCUs are valuable. Yeah, that's fine. Because you've never been there. You don't understand the research that goes in, goes on in those places, how it has the number one research center for sickle cell. It's, it's humongous. And their funding for sickle cell research is so valuable that the president of the university only went to Howard because he had sickle cell and his mother wouldn't let him go anywhere else. And they had the treatments and they were so forward thinking and he's almost 40 something plus years old. And we know that sickle cell patients don't usually don't live, live that past long. that. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and so I think the under, you know, the undercurrent of what people say or think has never bothered me because when you step into a place of such deep historical reverence like you respect it in a different way yeah. like when you go into the the research library and you see some of the original artwork you see some of the original books you see some of the original research and you really get to see and understand this place is not only a place that was created to learn it, it's a place to essentially to protect our history because without it who who would hold on to our they would throw it away right they would disregard it protect the narrative as well yeah give other people the credit and so we haven't had to fight for many of the things that we have learned or done only because we have libraries at our university at hbcus that allow us to put out information and to put out research and to put out content and put out information that represents our community and i think that's something that i i think a lot of black people who are in white spaces don't understand and if your desire is to be the best black person for white people then that's that's fine, but that's not why people go to Howard. You're not the best black person for white people. You're the best black person to get into the room and then you bring more black people with you. So if you go to certain places in New York and there's one Howard person there, there's soon it'll be five, soon it'll be 10, soon it'll be 20. That's how it works everywhere. Our goal is not to essentially be here by ourselves, but to build a community where everyone can come. Do you think, and now just shifting a little bit gears into what you do now, um, how do you feel your HBCU experience? I know you mentioned that, you know, prepares us to be, to go back to our communities, but how do you feel like it's prepared you in your specific role now and in your solo practice? Yeah. So I think HBCUs teach me leverage. You know, I think sometimes going to a school that gives you a lot and you don't have a lot of adversity other than your race, you're, you come out angry trying to mm. prove something. I have nothing to prove to white people. I have nothing to prove to anyone other than my, my community. I had to prove, you know, you know my, my, the people who weren't able to invest in me along the way, even if it wasn't a lot, I have to make their investment worth it. Whether it was $500 or $5,000, it doesn't matter. They gave me something that gave me an opportunity to then keep moving forward. So I think for me, Howard taught me leverage because I didn't have everything else. I didn't have the money. I didn't come from a Ivy League. I didn't have all of these specific experiences. All I had was my grit 
And I think grit sometimes is like seen as a negative thing. But for me, it's the it's the it's the it's the power move that you don't have to like be loud about. So you can underestimate me, but I'm going to come at a way and in a level that you're, you you know, just you don't even expect it. So when I worked at Hopkins and people would say, you know, not that they don't want to work with me, but they weren't very kind to me. When the right. other nurse was crying and couldn't handle the case, guess who they call? They call me. Right. And so I don't have that same. I think sometimes people who go to PWIs, they have this like, I'm going to prove you wrong, you know? And I'm just like, I don't have to prove anybody wrong. I'm going to do my best in this space. And then when I go home, my people are going to tell me how good I am, right? I don't need white people. I don't need that validation from anyone else because my community is already telling me I'm doing doing a thing, you know? And I am an anomaly in my community. And I think that's what's most so powerful. And I know for some people, they're like, oh, it's not, everything's not about race. And it's like, you're right. Because there are white people who go to Howard. And guess what? If you talk to them, they talk mm-hmm. just like me. Not because they see white people differently, but they see themselves differently. It is not their place to oppress mm-hmm. others. It is their place to uplift learn. others. Mm-hmm. And when you come into a place and you learn how to uplift others without necessarily having to put yourself down where we can all be seen, you talk differently. You think differently. And so even my white professors at Howard, they were amazing. They were amazing. And it we and many of them, like my English professor, he, his goal wasn't here to, to oppress you. He didn't come here for systemic oppression, right? He's a white professor at a black school, but he was here to make sure you learn. And in those moments when you weren't learning, he was going to check you. And it, but it wasn't nasty or negative. Like, I think I would feel like there was a, just a recent incident, I think at Georgia state where the professor called the police, the police on two black students who were late to her class. That would never happen at Howard, right? From any professor. And so I think that's something I think that is, it's just really different. And most Howard students, we're not out here, or HBCU students, period. Spellman, I don't care nobody say, I love me some Howard. But if you ever met a Spellman woman, they bad. They some bad chicks. Like I, every Spellman woman I've ever met, I'm like, y'all bad. Like it's, it's because their institution is so good at pushing them to understand how great they are. So when they walk off campus, their goal is to be so great that it brings good light to their, to their university. As, and Spelman is very small. Yeah. So small. And Morehouse. But they're, they're, yeah. But their view in the community and the way people view them is so grand because awesome. of how excellent people are who come out of them. All right. And then our last question that we have for you, um, you know, what advice do you give? Like I said, KJ and I, we're, we're done with school after this. We're not going back ever. Done with law yeah. school. Yeah. Y'all, mm-hmm. y'all, y'all, y'all go get a certificate. Well, no law school, but uh, and so you know, what, what advice would you give to someone who's thinking about going back to an HBCU for law school or for undergrad? You know, you can't listen to what anybody said. I think that the media or people who've never been or experienced Howard um, can say things negatively, or, or, or any HBCU can Absolutely. say negative things. But there's negative things that happen at every school. Um, people say, "Oh, people at HBCU steal money." There's someone I think it, it was at Yale who stole millions of dollars um, out of their med school. It happens, right? And I think our desire to be in a perfect place, whether that's an HBCU or a PWI, is just wrong because the, there no place is perfect because we're it's made of people. And if your desire is to be somewhere where you can be yourself 
whether that's being natural or a glamazon, or if that means being artistic or whatever, or if that means being a multi-passionate and you want to be somewhere where someone's going to love on you and love that out of you so that you can be who you are. I think an HBCU is a good, a good decision. It's become a lot harder to go to HBCUs now. I couldn't get into Howard today if, if, if I had to apply, but it's not just the Howards or the Spellmans or the Morehouses. North Carolina A&T is a beautiful HBCU with a beautiful campus. They're a state school, so they get a lot of funding. So they're able to do so much for their students that we just don't get because Howard's a private school. Morgan University is the same thing. You know, a lot of amazing people come out of FAM. Um, and, and I think that's what we have to see right. is that you have to go where you, you're going to prosper, whether that's a small HBCU or a big one whether that's a small town or a big town, um, or whether that's a PWI and you just figure out how to get connected some way to your roots in that space. Um, but I think I think what hurts me the most is to see people go to PWIs and to be excited to get there and then to get there and to be so shocked that they're, be, they're being treated poorly. And not to say that you shouldn't go to PWI because you may never, you may not live next to an HBCU or you may not be able to afford it, mm-hmm. but I don't like that people are so shocked. Right. I'm like, y'all gotta know this, this is America. Y'all home, home, your hometown may not have been as crazy, but you literally, your yeah. PWI is, is what America is gonna be when you walk yeah. out. And so instead of being angry, just prepare yourself, you know? And I think that's what we get at an HBCU is just preparation that I think that they don't get at PWIs. You get the education, you get the systems, but you don't get, you don't become prepared and how to navigate that negativity and how to rise above it and kind of keep moving forward. So if you're interested, I say go, you know, go see it, you know, apply, experience it. Go to, a, I would say go to a homecoming or go on a good spring day to see what the vibes are like, to see if that's, that's something what I want to do. I want to go yeah, to a homecoming just and just see the vibes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Big vibes. So big, big, big vibes. Um, and so I just encourage people for that. And I also think, you know, our HBCUs have do have a lot of things that we have to do better. And I think that we as alumni are pushing and pressuring and trying to raise more money to make sure those things happen. Um, capital is a huge issue for the Black community overall. And it's, it's the same for our HBCUs. We're underfunded. We are under-supported. Mm-hmm. Most students who graduate from HBCUs have student loans. And so the, our ability to give back isn't as great as those who come from PWIs. And so some of the same challenges that we face as a Black community are the same as in HBCUs. But I see a lot of amazing multicultural things happening. I think people think HBCUs and they don't think Black. And I'm like, there's a lot of people who come from all over the world because it's more comfortable than going to a PWI, right? If you already speak a second language, most of the people on that that campus are from other countries as well, and they speak second language, or they grew up in homes that spoke second languages, or they're immigrants, so they don't look at you differently or negatively. So I think the benefit is not just Black people who go to these spaces, it's also other people who get to come to these spaces, and they get to see the comfort wow. of just being able to be themselves. Ooh, thank you so mm-hmm. much, Ernice. <laughs> I learned so, so much, you know, I learned so much today. I mean, it's something that's in the news now. It's in like, like you said, in Capitol, in DC and people need to know. And um, yeah, I'm just so glad that we got to pick your brand. I'm so glad we got to have you as a guest. Thank you. I'm so excited for you. Uh, But before we let you go, we like to ask our guests two fun Mm -hmm. questions. And the first one is what's your Mm -hmm. go-to food Um, now, or even when you were a law student, did you have a go-to food? I was poor. No, like Chipotle was my go-to food in law school. Like it was cheap. It was fast. It was easy. 
or potbelly. It was like a potbelly right by my law school. I don't, y'all, y'all may not have those. Yeah, that was really big when I was in law school, but now I'm a big girl now. Um, now that I can afford food, I mean, I've always been a big seafood lover, uh, depending where I'm at. So if I'm in Baltimore, I like crabs. If I'm in New Orleans, I like oysters. Um, if I'm in Houston or, you know, New Orleans, I like crawfish, you know. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a foodie. I'm married to a chef. You're a so. genius. <laughs> Never cooking again. <laughs> I know, right? Dang. Okay, and then our last question is a little bit more reflective. Um, okay. But what has the pandemic taught you about yourself? Yeah, the pandemic is really the only reason I even relaunched wow. my law practice. I launched my law practice in 2017, mm-hmm. wow. and I got discouraged just because it was a lot. It was starting mm-hmm. the business is no joke. Overwhelmed, all of the things, and I kind of just let right. it die down. On top of all the law stuff, even though I was building the whole business, pers- yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just the business aspect mm-hmm. I wasn't ready for. And then the pandemic happened, and it was kind of like mm-hmm. now or never. You know, I still mm. was working as a nurse; it was easy. Um, my husband traveled for work, and so he was home, and I was like, "Man, this is the best time! Like, you get all the responsibilities. Your kids, <laughs> your life, like, cook the food, like, do everything. I'm about to figure my life out." And I took 2020 to reconfigure, hire a coach, put all the ideas on paper, and then my life took off. And 2021, I still worked full-time as a nurse until last October, but essentially March of 2021, things really took off for my business. And I think in the last year, I can't even numerically, like not even just on the financial aspect of how much money I've made, because most of the money has gone back into the business, but just the growth has been astronomical, like not just on social media, but business and exposure, opportunities, all of that. And I think the blueprint that I hope to write for new attorneys is not one of struggle, Mm -hmm. right? I'm very big on ease. Like I'm so used to struggling my whole life. There has to be another way. And there is, it's ease. But most people aren't used to ease because it sounds so much like easy that we think that that's wrong. Like, oh, no, too easy. It can't be right. But right. ease means like what's most natural to you. And the Ooh. thing that I said was most natural to me, people kept telling me didn't exist. And when I said I wanted to create it, people tell me it would never happen. And so when I created my law practice and I found my niche and I found my voice and I started speaking up and I started building digital products, I was like, damn, I, I did. I did it did make sense, right? Like what I said was real, what I said was true. There is a community out there that wants to learn about how to avoid malpractice. There is a community that wants to learn about documentation. It exists. And yeah. now I have 40,000 people follow me on Instagram. And I'm like, yo, this is, this I could have been on, but y'all tell me no. <laughs> right? Years, you know? Listen so, to people. Yeah, the pandemic definitely shook me up. And I hate, you know, in a way it sucks because I know it was bad for a lot of people. Right, right. And for me, I think, you know, the pandemic saved my life because I was so unhappy and so miserable. I would rather have not been here because I'm like, this ain't life. Like, I don't want to live like this. Right. And it, it put me in a place to say, you were created for something greater. Now go do it. You have it all. You got to go do it. And a lot of people just don't have the confidence. I think we keep giving people skills and education and information, but sometimes we just need to give people confidence. They call it mindset, but I think what people don't understand about mindset is you really sometimes can't control your mind, but what you can't control is how you feel on the inside and do the things that make you feel confident enough to get out and do what you were created to do. That's why it's so commendable that you really did do that. And it's good for everyone to hear because I think a lot of people felt that way, but not everyone executed, you know? 
Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully this helps some of y'all who are thinking and considering it and opens people's eyes who have a negative perspective or a view of HBCUs. But let me tell you something. If you have a negative view, come during football season, come during homecoming, (laughs) and you'll see why we're so crazy about our HBCUs. I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Ernice, for being on our podcast once again. And for those who want to find you, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm your nurse lawyer on all social media platforms. I dibble and dabble on all of them. So uh, mostly on Instagram, but I'll be going off on Twitter. So follow me on there. <laughs> I, had to delete, I had to delete my Twitter for my character and fitness exam because I used to argue with people when I was in law school. Oh, <laughs> so I deleted it's another it piece of Instagram advice. There you go. Yeah. yeah. All right, there you go. Because people, they be, yeah, they be digging. They be digging. So um, I, I, you can find me all of those places and all of the links are in all of my bios if y'all want to connect or thank you so much that's your Mm nest lawyer all right thank you once again our niece talk to you later thank you